The wisdom also is not just for overcoming self-deception, it's also for in affording enhanced connectedness. Now when people experience both of those, they experience enhanced meaning in life. This is Glenn Murphy with NC Sistema, and this is Sistema for Life. John Verveke, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, glad. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I've been, been wanting to chat to you for, for a little while after um, reading some of your work a while back and then been prodded more recently, as we just discussed, um, um, by my friend and colleague in Spain. Um, so... I wanted to kind of get into a little bit about, um, it seems like so many themes that you think and, and work around that are relevant to today's, uh, today's situation, particularly under COVID. But before we kind of get mired into that, um, just do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and, um, and how you would describe yourself as a cognitive scientist or a, a cognitive psychologist, or is it a little bit of both? Um, so officially, it's a little bit of both. Because um, uh, uh, officially at the University of Toronto, I am 60%, I don't know what this means about me actually, but officially I'm 60% uh, cognitive psychologist and 40% a cognitive scientist. But I've actually been doing cognitive science at the University of Toronto longer, and I'm currently the director of the cognitive science program. So although it's 60-40, it's really more like 50-50. Um, so pretty much I, I work in both areas uh, and they overlap a lot, of course. Um, and, and my work it has a lot to do with actually bridging specifically uh, between psychology and, and cognitive science. But I also have a lot of training in uh, philosophy. I have three degrees in philosophy as well. Um, so I, I can bring ph uh, philosophical, uh, you know, conceptual theoretical analysis to bear on issues in psychology and cognitive science. And that's because philosophy is considered a proper part of cognitive science, at least one important aspect of, of philosophy. And so you can see why topics like wisdom would right, would, 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 would draw on all three of those areas. Obviously, it's got a philosophical heritage, an aspect, psychological components about cognition, and then cognitive science are going to get actually into information processing ideas about, uh, you know, intelligence and rationality and wisdom. So a lot of my topics, the, the areas I work on, actually involve all three of those hats being worn, maybe not at the same time, but at least interchanged very quickly. Yeah, it, it seems it's been so nice to see the resurgence and in interest in philosophy in recent years because of cognitive science, right? It's almost like it was pushed down for a while, like, oh, that's not real thinking, that's not science, but we'll kind of pay lip service to it. But in, in the last few decades in particular, it seems to be an enormous resurgence and the idea that there are, there are deep, deep connections that we've been ignoring for a while that maybe we knew about a while back that we're just rediscovering the... Uh, yeah, hardware for. Yeah, I mean, and part of that has been also uh, a resurgence of topics, uh, often initially introduced uh, through cognitive science, like wisdom and consciousness and altered states of consciousness. That, that's very much the case. Um, so, for example, the cognitive science program at the University of Toronto is, I think, the only program. It's it's growing like very powerfully, but it's the only program that has a humanities component that's actually growing. In general, cognitive science has been a, I mean, it's its a reciprocal relationship, but cognitive science has been a significant boon uh, to philosophy uh, and, and to some degree also anthropology. Right. Gotcha. So, and you're also a an experienced uh, practitioner and teacher of uh, Tai Chi Chuan of and of different forms of meditation too, maybe Vipassana and Metta, is it? That's right, right. So I have taught 
sort of professionally, I guess about 20 years, Tai Chi Chuan, the past the meditation, uh, meta contemplation, some aspects of Qigong. Um, I, I do a live morning uh, class uh, now uh, since COVID started to try and help people uh, called Meditating with John Raveki, where I te- I've taught Vipassana, Meta, a non-dual practice called Prajna. I've taught related uh, practices of, of Qigong, uh, some basic Tai Chi walking. So yeah, very deeply. And I also study those things uh, academically as a scientist. I've published on mindfulness. Uh, I've published on altered states of consciousness, mystical experiences. I've run experiment, trying to get published. I've published on flow states, um, uh, stuff like that. So Excellent. So which came first in that particular particular chicken and egg was it um the hard science first and the cognitive science that led you back towards that or did you open up with martial arts and mindfulness and then go the other way well well the the pathway is a little bit convoluted i came out of a religious background but then i rejected that and then i was hungry um this is now reflective i wasn't fully aware of this at the sure. time so yeah. i'm I, i'm speaking with you know hindsight bias as we all do uh, but, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah as we all do i was speak, uh, so i was seeking um the kind of functionality for meaning making and connection and self-transcendence that religion promises to afford and sometimes it fulfills right um and because I, had, uh, because I had found the fundamentalist Christianity that I've been brought up in too restrictive, even traumatizing, um, I, I had rejected a religious framework, but um, I was still hungry. And then I encountered philosophy. I, I encountered the figure of Socrates in university and also um, the figure of Jung uh, when I was just ending high school. So right about that time, I was introduced to this project of sort of seeking wisdom and self-transformation. So I, I went on in philosophy. But as I went on, went on, the topic, it's, it's paradoxical given the name of the discipline, the love of wisdom. The topic of wisdom just dropped off the table. It didn't, ex- like, you couldn't take classes that had anything remotely to do with it. It was all technical issues about justification and skepticism. So I continued on with that project because I found that, that those skills valuable and useful. But my hunger uh, for the cultivation of wisdom and trans- self-transformation was not uh, being satisfied. So I took took up. I just sort of randomly took up. I went to this place and I was so fortunate because they taught an ecology of practices. They taught Tai Chi Chuan, Vipassana and Metta and a bit of Qigong as an integrated ecology. And that's where I started uh, really getting interested in, uh, not in martial arts and mindfulness because I found it was satisfying this hunger for wisdom, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. No, not at all. But I was getting progressively dissatisfied with formal academic philosophy. So after my MA, I stopped philosophy. And what I did was, I mean, I continued on these practices, but then I, tr- I went back and, and I heard about this new discipline that was emerging called cognitive science. So I went back and got did a specialist degree in cognitive science, got training. Now, because I had done all the philosophy, I didn't need to do any of the philosophy courses for my cog sci degree. So that meant I was able to take actually more psych courses than most people do for their psych degree. Um, so I got a degree in cognitive science, specialization in psychology, and then I went back and started doing my PhD on cognitive science. By that time, people in cognitive science and the beginnings of cognitive psychology were starting to talk about mindfulness and flow and altered states of consciousness and wisdom. So I began to be able to teach about these things just as everything was coming together for me. A happy confluence. And, and so, yeah, it was a really happy confluence. So that, and then that has continued for me. And then what happened for me 
you know, and this was, again, a, a fortunate instance of where a bias um, actually turned out to be, be functional. Uh, we, we, we think that everybody is similar to us, right, and has the same interests as we do. But that confluence between cognitive science and mindfulness and wisdom that I was experiencing, I noticed that it was pervasive amongst my students. And so while I was doing it initially just to try and understand these phenomena and also for my own self-cultivation, I, I woke up because I was so impressed by how this confluence was so appealing to so many of my students. And it very quickly became the center of my work and much more of a vocation even than just a, a profession. And that's how I got into stuff around wisdom and mindfulness and the meaning crisis. Right. Yeah, so that's, that's something I want to kind of dig into a little bit, this, this idea of a meaning crisis. It's something you've talked about and you talked about recently at the uh, Embodied Move Movement Summit um, hosted by Evolve Move Play and Rafe Kelly and all those guys as well. Um, and this idea that we're in the midst at the moment of a kind of a dearth of meaning in our in our lives in the for one for better yeah. the Western world kind of thing, right? Um, yes. What, yeah. what does it um, What does it mean to you to say that we're in the midst of a meaning crisis? What What have we actually lost, and how did we create meaning in the past? There's a There's a couple different aspects to that. Uh, I have I have a long series on YouTube called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which is 50 episodes, and each is an hour long. So it's hard to compress this argument. Into, sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm, just, I'm, I'm asking for a little bit of charity. On you're going to be part. very lazy. You just go with the cliff notes for this one. <laughs> Here's a, a way I often uh, get, get a sort of a, it's not an elevator pitch because it's too it's too long of an elevator ride, but an, an initially maybe a, a point of good access. The fundamental idea is to understand that your cognition, that aspect of functioning of your brain that makes you intelligent and a problem solver, it's a highly complex self-organizing system. And, and this will be relevant later when we talk about uh, you know, uh, kinds of knowing and things like that. But the important idea here is that those very same processes of self-organization that make you intelligently adaptive also make you perennially prone to self-deception. The very mechanisms of self-organization make us at multiple levels in complex ways makes us vulnerable uh, to self-deception. And dealing with that Right requires a, a, well, it requires a complex what I call an ecology of practices. You're basically an ecology of functions. You're a self-organizing ecology of functions, and and they can self-organize in a maladaptive way. And so you need an ecology of practices that are complex enough and self-organizing enough and adaptive enough that they can deal with that self-deception. Right. And so, so does, does this have any crossover with the kind of like the Buddhist idea of? Um, that we're deceiving ourselves as soon as we try and label and organize things, um, that, that, that things move on, or is that a slightly different tech? That's one instance okay. of it. I, yeah. wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't limit, but, but the idea is, notice that. Let's, let's notice that. Okay. Let's use that as an example, just to, and then we'll come back to the main argument. So sure. I want to show you how something that's a bias is also adaptive and vice versa. So we worry a lot, as you just did, and you're right to do so. You're right to do so. We worry about stereotyping. We worry about prejudice. We worry about reducing things to their categorical identity. And it's like, oh, yeah, this, wow, I can get caught up in all kinds of ways in the Buddhist, as you just said, point that out to us. But imagine if I took your ability to categorize away from you, right? So now you would come into the room and, and think about this, because this is going to be also a theme we're going to talk about later.
later, I hope. Think about all the information that's actually available to you. It's combinatorially explosive. The actual amount of information. Imagine if you had to treat everything you're you're interacting with, that thing you're sitting on. Imagine you couldn't categorize it as a chair. Imagine you had to interact with it as a raw individual and in and, and all of the ways in which it is a raw individual act, interacted with the desk, which wouldn't be a desk to you. It'd be a raw. You see what would happen? Sure. You, okay. It'd be a kind of like a LS, bad LSD trip or something. Really, really <laughs> bad LSD stuff. trip. Yeah. So that, this, this is a process I call relevance realization. Mm. Your brain is really, really powerful. And this is the ability that we're finding it difficult to give to artificial intelligence. Your brain has this powerful ability to zero in on relevant information, right? and ignore irrelevant information. You depend on it. But notice how you zeroing in on categorizing makes you ignore a lot of information that might turn out to later be relevant. And that's how you fall prey to bias and stereotyping. Did that work for you as an example of what I'm talking about? It did, yeah. So let me um, see if I can paraphrase to see whether or not there's any aspect of the understanding that was lost there. Um, so you're saying that it's necessary to filter our environment. There's just too much information in it. We have to by defunct. And that's one of the things our brains are designed to do, right? It's just to look for the delta, the changes, and put everything else into kind of background noise until it thinks that we need it, like the amygdala gets fired or something because something looks dangerous or to the, <laughs> and then we come back into that kind of part. Um, but f but over-categorizing and, and going down into kind of subgroups and labeling everything and noticing every tiny little thing we see would be pathological too, right? And I'm failing to do that. So is this about trying to build some sort of middle ground in which you, you have both open to you? Well, you can't build the middle ground because, right, uh, um, sometimes you do need to over-categorize. If you're a dentist, you need to over-categorize teeth way more than you and I do, right? The point is you can't create like an algorithm, a rule that says always pay attention to this information. So there's no algorithm for how you can pay attention, but you, you can't pay attention arbitrarily either, right? Because then you, you just be, you just be lost in this morass and it'd be chaos. So what you have is very complex systems of self-organization that are constantly, your brain is constantly evolving its fittedness to the environment. The way natural selection is constantly evolving animal morphology, and there isn't perfect design. Animals, you know, species are constantly evolving because the environment is constantly changing. Now, that is all wonderful, and it is massively complex and self-organizing, but it means your capacity, because we just we just chose a one tiny example, uh, categorizing. You have all kinds. So think of yourself as having massive filters that filter each other, and, and they are constantly reconfiguring how they're filtering. So your capacity for intelligence is massive, but correspondingly, your capacity for complex self-deception is also massive. Yeah. Maybe that's playing out on the global political scale right now as well. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, let's call that comp those comprehensive of self-organizing patterns of self-deception. Let's use an ancient word for it: foolishness. Okay. Because foolishness is foolishness is different from ignorance. Ignorance is when you just lack knowledge, right? And, and so, so you overcome ignorance by acquiring knowledge. But foolishness is about self-deceptive, self-destructive patterns of behavior. And therefore, overcoming foolishness requires something different. It requires wisdom. Wisdom is this capacity for creating a counteractive ecology of practices that will counteract 
and help more, right, counteract your propensities to self-deception. So cultures perennially across space and time have created rich ecologies of practices in order to help people deal with self-deception. But there's another issue. Sorry, this is a bit of a thing, but I'm no, trying sure, to yeah. answer questions. It's like, it's like uh, Arabian Nights. You have to get one story finished before you can nest it inside of another <laughs> one. Like Russian dolls. Yeah. <laughs> so no, notice something else that, that I just, when I talked about that relevance realization, how it fitted you to your environment, you, you sense that you belong in that room, right? You are connected to your environment, and you and I are connecting. And so it turns out that because it's so central to our cognitive agency that we are highly motivated to to improve these connections the connections to the world to each other and to ourselves because we got we got to connect our body we got to connect to our body and through our body so people also hunger not only to overcome self-deception they also hunger to improve these what I call religio which actually meant to connect and bind together they they want to enhance this sense of connection connectedness to each other, right, to the world and to themselves. And so the wisdom also is not just for overcoming self-deception, it's also for affording enhanced connectedness. Now, when people experience both of those, they experience enhanced meaning in life. Okay. Through through whatever through whatever path they get to that, whether it's from yeah. one particular religious doctrine, whether it's from years of a personal meditation or whatever it is, they create some sort of meaning that, that helps stabilize their processes. Exactly. Exactly. Now, but notice, notice something. Notice how you invoke something, right, that is actually not from your own historical context, sure. because that's going to allow me to talk about what, what's one of the key aspects of the meaning crisis. So we, we, we have perennial problems of self-deception, and we have the perennial hunger for connection. And so we have the perennial search for an ecology of practices that will cultivate that kind of wisdom. And remember, this wisdom isn't just in your head. It's between us. Sure. It's also between us, right? Yeah. So we seek communities of practices and we seek and say and you invoked it we, we we what we need is we need a cultural system that properly houses and legitimates and valorizes that pursuit of wisdom and for lots of historical reasons we have lost that in the west hi folks glenn here as Systema for Life approaches its 100th episode, I'd like to take a minute to thank everyone who has contributed to the show, all our listeners, and to everyone who's offered requests, encouragement, and feedback along the way. I also need to ask a quick favor. We have already enjoyed two years of high-quality interviews, insights, and ideas on Systema for Life. We'd like to keep the show going, and we want to keep it open to all, but we need your help to do it. It takes time, effort, and more than little cash to produce a podcast more than two grand a year at current hosting and production rates. We have no paid advertising, and we do it all off our own backs with help from listeners and generous supporters like you. So if you're a fan of Systema for Life and you get real value from the ideas and the conversations we create, then please take a few minutes now to subscribe at www.ncsystema.com support. Support at whatever level you feel like you can afford. Even $3 or $5 a month is a help. Think of it as buying us a beer or a cup of coffee once a month for our travels. So visit ncsystema.com support and use the buttons on the page to select your preferred monthly or annual support level. You'll receive a confirmation on sign up and you can cancel at any time. So is it, is it simple? It's not as simple as that there's just been a general decline in 
religiosity, you know, in favor of kind of self-made spirituality or secularism. And there's been nothing to replace that loss of, in the Western world, presumably Christianity, right? Death of God, which is much more comprehensive, is part of that. And again, I'm a scientist, so remember what I'm speaking from. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not some religious proselytizer. But the rise of, of a scientific worldview. Here, here, and I'll show you how this comes into cognitive science. This is how I often teach my students about cognitive science. I said, the scientific worldview, the one thing for missing, the one thing really missing from the scientific worldview is an explanation of how we do science. Yeah. How does science itself come into existence, right? So what cognitive science is trying to do is to try and figure out, it's trying to generate a science of how cognition generates science. Yeah, because we, we've kind of had that like, lip service to that idea. I mean, it, it, I, mean I, st I studied uh, genetics and immunology in my undergraduate, right? I managed to go all the way through that without a single course on the philosophy or sociology of scientific knowledge at all. I didn't have to know where it came from. I just had to know that it worked and there's a method and you do it and this is how reproduce it and how it comes. But then I did a master's in science communication at Imperial College in London and we went deep into the sociology and the philosophy of scientific knowledge. We looked at logic and, you know, Karl Popper and falsifiability and you know, Thomas Kuhn and all of those ideas. But still at the end of it, I was still like, it still doesn't really explain exactly what it is or why we adhere to it over anything else, except unless you can sum it up with, well, it's the best thing we've got, right? <laughs> it's the best educated guess we have relative to other ways of knowing, you know, something like that. And that still left me a little bit unfulfilled as a, as a way of kind of, because it has weak spots, obviously, but science can have blind spots depending on what you're looking at. Totally. I would say, and this isn't trying. This is not one-upmanship. I think the problem of cognitive science is even harder because philosophy of science is still taking science as an existing phenomena. But notice something. Notice that the ontology of science does not include the ontology of the practice of science. So we do not have a scientific account of how meaning is generated. We do not have a scientific account of how consciousness emerges. We do not have a scientific account of what the self or personhood are. So we, right, although these things are now emerging. And so cognitive science is about the fact that we, as a culture, generate a scientific worldview in which we, in which we do not belong. Because we talk, we live according to meaning and truth, but science presupposes them. It has no explanation for how we generate meaning, or as you just pointed out a minute ago, how we judge or realize what is true. Sure. And in, in some ways, it doesn't even attempt to generate truths, right? It just attempts to generate falsifiable ideas that can then be progressive and evolve over time. And then you get into problems with like what's true and you have two scientists disagreeing and a member of the public who's like, oh, they don't know anything because they disagree with each other. It's like, it's. <laughs> so there is there is that. But see, I, I, I like I said, I step back even further. I want if you're going to invoke Popper's falsification of an idea, what the cognitive scientist is going to ask is, yeah, but what's an idea? Where does it come from? from? How does, it, how does it point to the world? What's the difference between a conscious and an unconscious idea? You need to answer all of those questions. Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay, so what I mean is you as a cognizer don't actually fit into the scientific world. So worldview. So it's not only that we lost the Christian tradition that gave us our wisdom institutions. I will often say to my students, where do you go from information, the internet? Well, where do you go for knowledge, science, history? Where do you go for wisdom? There's a deafening silence. And what they what they do is they, they look for a worldview that will house their attempts at self-transcendence, self-awareness, self-understanding, and wisdom. And the scientific worldview doesn't give it to them because it's, it's, it is not. But cognitive science is trying to close that gap. Do you, do you think it can? 
do you think there's there there'll come a point where we have enough information and enough understanding that wisdom in itself becomes something that we can pull apart, categorize, <laughs> and reapply in a way that's satisfying for people? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's it's very hard to predict the future of scientific investigation. What I can say is this: I mean, I I was privileged to just to to just participate and be in one of the authors on, uh, and this was led by Ivar Grossman uh, uh, on a, a consensus paper. Sort of the, the major researchers in, on wisdom, the scientific study of wisdom, psychologists, cognitive scientists, neuroscientists, you know, um, even you know linguists, the, the major researchers on wisdom. And there is a growing consensus from the science about what wisdom is and how we can understand it and what are the central functions and abilities that are important to it. So I think we're making progress. I think we're making a ama- uh, if you'll allow me, I think some of the work I'm doing on relevance realization and all the work in what's called 4E cognitive science is giving us a more profound understanding of intelligence and, and related things like self-deception and rationality. All of this is growing tremendously, as is the work on the nature of meaning in life and the kind of meaning that is not not the meaning of sentences but the meaning of experience we're getting a better understanding of that and consciousness so all of this is progressing uh, whether or not we come to some you know uh, Promethean point or not where we finally steal the fire from the gods I don't know but are we making significant advances such that it is reasonable and plausible to try and use this knowledge to get back to a way of understanding ourselves and the cultivation of wisdom. Yes, I think that is, I think there's a way in which we can use the best science, but also the we can exact the best from the wisdom traditions to put together a viable and plausible and yet scientifically respectable response to the meaning crisis. Excellent. Amen to that. <laughs> I sincerely hope. So it's, it's potentially noble then. There are known unknowns in the words of Rumsfeld and all that talk. So you can, you can actually get there. We know what we need to know in a sense. And... Not everybody would agree with me. Some people think there are unsolvable problems about consciousness and meaning, but the growing consensus is, uh, although these problems are hard, we are making the kind of progress that's not just ivory tower progress. We're making the kind of progress that's translating into improvements in artificial intelligence, improvements in the, the in pedagogy, improvements in psychotherapeutic intervention, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. So, so shifting tack a little bit to kind of like the pragmatism of all this, right? Um, so understanding how we apply these ideas in our daily lives, because often there are discoveries in cognitive science that seem important in and of themselves. And then you can read about them and you can think, yeah, this is great. I'm definitely going to apply this to my life. Now this framing effect will help me to make better, better choices and this will help me do something else. And then you forget to apply it and you just go about your daily life and you, you're as much a chump as everybody else <laughs> in some ways, unless you train. It seems like the, the training things like mindfulness or martial arts or, or ways of training and practicing those things are really what embeds it. It's not the knowledge and receiving the information. It's it's actually applying it and seeing it applied and succeeding that our brains seem to take notice of and move on with. So with that, with that vein, what application do you feel like um, this potential kind of synthesis of uh, other paths to wisdom and cognitive science as a way of kind of passing out what it is we can know through science? What what kind of value would that have in today's society? And I'm, I'm putting it in the context of a society which at the moment, is, at least in the Western world and the United States, seems a little bit lost, a little bit, like you say, without meaning, um, and where people either latch on to kind of off-the-shelf philosophies um, or they kind of spiral around 
um, kind of butterflying between philosophies and never quite latching onto them a lot of the time. Um, so what do you feel like we have to say about that? Well, I think there's a lot to say about it. I mean, Leo Ferraro and I have talked about uh, we, 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 we need to distinguish and not conflate or equivocate between a language of explaining, which is what Cod Sci can give us, perhaps, um, and a language of training, which is what these wisdom traditions. And you can make, make mistakes going both ways. Don't think that the language of explaining is sufficient or training. And don't think the language of training can just be mapped into explaining without any, without any questioning. So you have to distinguish them. And then when you properly distinguish them, you have the interesting and important task of trying to relate them reliably together, which is why I'm in these ongoing discussions with people who are intensely involved in the practice but want to know the cognitive science. You mentioned Rafe Kelly. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. Um, and so what what is coming out from that is, you know, is what you might call the bridge building between the language of explaining and the language of training. And what's helping doing that bridge building, I think, um, and I think the Movement Summit really pointed this out, is for people to start understanding some of the insights that come from what's called 4E cognitive science about how embodied, embedded, enacted, and extended our, our cognitive processes are, how much our cognition is, like I say, an ecology of functions. Uh, um, and so one, things that come, one thing that com comes out of that, um, one thing that's germinated in my mind because of my own idiosyncratic past within the wisdom traditions and what I've seen in cognitive science is this idea of an ecology of practices. Uh, the, the idea that, and, it, and, it, and you know, it obviously has precursors like, you know, the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. Right. So the idea of what I want to do is I want to create a dynamical system of functions, of practices, because practices have relative strengths and weaknesses, and you can put them into relationships of complementarity so that they, they can self-correct. And you can also layer them. So you can get a lot of that. You can get like looping self-correction. You can get layering of functions. Right. So that's why I talk about it in an ecology, because I was taught an ecology of practices. I was taught you know, uh, Vipassana, which basically, you know, it's a meditative process in which you're looking, you're moving in and you're stepping back, right, and looking at your framing. But I was also taught meta, which is a contemplative practice for looking out and seeing the world. I often use the analogy of, of cleaning your glasses. So Vipassana, normally we're not aware of how we're framing the world, right? We're like the lenses, and you, you have to, Vipassana trains you to step back and look at, right? But, you know, how do I know if I've actually cleaned my glasses? If I just do this forever, it's really hard to tell. You know what I need to do? I need to put them on and look out and see if I can see the world in a different way. And that's a contemplative practice. That's meta, right? And then, and then what I need to do ultimately is develop something that gets me to the grounding relationship between that in and out. That's, that, that's those practices that take me into non-duality. You see, I wanted to, that's prajna practices. So I put metta and vipassana into, right, you know, what's called opponent processing, a relationship of self-correcting complementarity. Okay. Like, like a dynamic that. balance. Like yeah, a dynamic, dynamic balance. balance. Yeah. But I also, they also are a platform that I can layer, I can layer on top of that prajna. Prajna is a practice that gets me to, you know, take the moving in and moving out and turn it into all at once, non-duality. So do you see what I mean by linking and layering? And so you can get, you can get an ecology of practices that builds up 
and having a sophisticated understanding of different cognitive functions and that self-organizing process helps me actually and it, it helps me construct and it also gives me it persuades me that I should construct an ecology of practices this is the best way of trying uh, to deal I would argue with the need to overcome self-deception and to satisfy the hunger for religio the hunger for connection right so with that, I think I'd like to really drill down a little bit on just kind of one example of using, um, obviously I'm a little biased here being that I'm a martial artist and lifelong and I teach martial arts, um, kind of using martial art and particularly the one that um, we practice and study most, Sistema, the Russian-derived martial art, um, which is actually based up there in Toronto. So there you go, the, the world head of Sistema outside of Moscow is right there on the, on the Glen Cameron Road up there. So it's not too far from you. But um, so... It's interesting, that phrasing of ecology of practices, I haven't really heard it put that way before, but it, it, it seems to me that part of the path that I followed and a lot of the people that I know that train Sistema have followed has been that they started out looking for one thing in martial arts, and it might be just that they you know, felt afraid or they felt insecure or they felt broken in some way or traumatized, and they practiced martial arts in order to make themselves feel tougher and less insecure, right? Um, and then some people, obviously get enjoyment just from the physicality of it. They can experience flow states when they're in competition for those that do competitions. If you're doing something else, like an internal practice, like, um, you know, Taiji or Bagua or something like that, then people often look for something else. They're looking for kind of what are the founding relationships between yourself and the ground and like, how do you spread and distribute pressures? And then how does that work in relationship with other people? And in doing that, they come to understand a little bit more about the movements of their mind, right? And if you, if you tend to yield to people, you know, without um, grounding, then you tend to be a pushover as a person, right? Like psychologically. But if you're if you're if you stand your ground all the time, you're stubborn, and that's that has its limits as well. And there are these kind of implicit connections between physical behaviors and kind of embodied thoughts, right? And, and that go both ways, obviously. And that's obviously something you've talked a lot about with Rafe. Um, in Sistema, we talk about it's interesting because we have all these practices, but they're not organized into kind of like a curriculum or a like you have to learn this and then this and then this it's kind of just like a shower of, of practices that you have to kind of um, decide what the importance is to you at any point but the the under the under the underlying goal is based on the old kind of um is it socratic the, the principle of know yourself i think it was on the temple at delphi or something like that know thyself and it's carried through um orthodox christianity which is some of the founding um um practices in sistema um, being it's russian and coming out of that um and so essentially, you've got these four pillars of um, breathing, uh, structure, movement, and then relaxation. And relaxation is like a, a, a control of where your tension and pressure goes, in a sense, like physical or psychological. Yeah. So, so, so essentially, what, it, what it's doing is it works as a martial art, and you, know, you can punch people with it and throw people around and things. But the reason why we practice is, is almost as a movie, moving meditation. Right? Yeah, you're, yes. you're actually examining the relationship between thought intent, emotions, and then the physical structures and the resultant movements and actions that come out of that and how they're changed. So we'll literally do exercises like when somebody's grabbing you, they'll hold onto you and they have to push and pull you around. And you don't try and resist anything. You just hold an idea in your mind like disgust. And you notice that your body then becomes uh, heavier, more difficult to move, but also kind of more cumbersome. If you, get, if you conjure indifference instead, then you become very easy to move. You don't care about him, um, but too easy to move, right? You can both go down in a heap because he pulls you around too easily. And then if you conjure curiosity, um, something else entirely happens. You become stable, connected to the ground, to your environment, to the other person. And it's almost like techniques and movements seem to suggest themselves. So it's this very interesting kind of 
layers. And this is just one of many kind of practices that we do to try and kind of analyze these things. But it strikes me that martial arts for me um, have kind of like a, a unique palette of options within them. And I'm sure there's corollaries in Tai Chi that you could, you could talk about as well in combining movement and mindfulness, right? What people often do is that they'll do yoga for their mindfulness practice or something or Vipassana for their mindfulness, and then they'll be runners, right? <laughs> and they're like, that's what I do for my physical culture. Or they'll do parkour and then they'll like, meditate in a different way or they, or they pray or whatever it's going to be. But it doesn't seem like there's an easy way to mesh those things together. And it's like you have to frame switch every single time there's the, and there's a cost right? There's a, a cognitive cost to switching every time you go from meditator to MMA fighter or you know, surfer to Buddhist or whatever it's going to be. And it doesn't seem like they mesh together quite in the same way. And that's part of the appeal to Sistema about Sistema for me was that it seemed to be a complete system. I couldn't see the whole system, but all the bits seem to fit. But in general, in your experience of teaching and training martial arts in the way that you've trained them, do you feel like there's, there's something within martial arts that offers something unique that like simpler disciplines like just running for example or like weightlifting or something done yes i think I, I, what you just all what you just said and thank you i didn't know very much about sistema that's amazing so if, if the if the orthodox christianity is coming through that means neoplatonism is also coming through so that really intrigues me uh because the socratic know thyself um so i, I think the martial let's qualify that because i think you did it in an important way let's say when martial arts are pursued as a vehicle for wisdom in the socratic sense of know thyself and they therefore they 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 put you into what you described an ecology of practices right in which you're doing you're and we'll talk about this maybe where, where you're really you know you're training that meta perspectival awareness for perspectival knowing but you're also tapping into participatory knowing the way you you don't you don't just know your body like an object you are your body you know it by being it right that that sort of participatory knowing and the and the way it's training all of those I and I think I, what I would add to that is it's also, uh, and perhaps you're sensing this, I think it also helps to satisfy the hunger for religio because most of the meaning-making machinery is not at the propositional level. It's not even at the level of our skills. Our, our procedural knowledge depends on our perspectival knowing, our situational awareness, right? And then that in turn depends on the way in which we, we are assuming an identity and assigning identity, like you were doing with the disgust. Like, now I'm a disgusted person, and the world is showing up this way to me. Whereas where if I am a curious person, I have I, I, my agency is shaped this way and the world is shaped correspondingly. Right. And so that's what exactly. exactly right. So that's where most of the religio is. So I think the martial arts, if they're done as wisdom practices in the way we're talking about here, in which mindfulness and the self and knowing the self through mindful movement, insofar as their wisdom practices like that, I think they, they do become rich ecologies of practices that that do have that linking and layering aspect to them. Now, what I what I what I would say to you is that as a cognitive scientist, uh, right, the, you you could think about how that could even be nested in something larger. And you, and you made a reference to it. Notice how, you know, Sistema was probably originally housed within Orthodox Christianity. Again, I'm not pushing Christianity or anything like that. I'm saying that, you know, ecolo ecologies are nested within each other. And so uh, one of the things, for example, I'm doing in my class is I've taken them through, uh, and you, you and I probably don't like these adjectives, but we don't have good alternatives to them. I've taken them through the Eastern traditions, you know, basically Vipassana, Metta, Prajna, a little bit of the martial art aspect, 
by teaching them some Tai Chi movements, some Qigong movements, uh, uh, you know, some basic rooting practices, standing, Zhang. So, you know, all of that. But now I'm shifting, and how all of that becomes an ecology. But now I'm shifting to the Western tradition, and I'm going to take them through the whole tradition that comes from Socrates, the Epicurean tradition and the Epicurean practices, the Stoic practices. Stoicism is going through a big revival today, yeah, and, that, and, and that's not a coincidence. And right, and right into the Neoplatonism, the Neoplatonism that's at the heart of Orthodoxy, by the way. Uh, and so, and and the, the point, the point for them is nobody's going to do all of this, right? It's, it's they're going to have to do that, 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 that selection that is bound to self-knowing, right? They're going to they're going to choose like you do from Systema, right? They're going to choose out of all of this what's important. How, what they're going to do is they're going to find for them which which practices address these perennial concerns and which configuration is the best for self-correction and self-organization. And, and so while there is a science of the functions and the self-organization, there's a plural there's a pluralism in how everybody's ecology of practice unfolds. And so I think the martial arts is like it's it's a it's a family of things that should always form a significant component of any wisdom cultivation. Yeah, I agree, hundred <laughs> percent. So so there's an interesting another aspect I think of martial arts culture is that um, and this goes across. I mean, I've practiced many. I trained for like 14, 15 years in Aikido, and I'd lived in Japan a couple of years and studied there and the traditional dojo, all that kind of stuff. And before that, karate and jujitsu and other stuff. So mostly, mostly Eastern stuff. Before I took on Sistema, interestingly, um, and they have some slightly different ethos because they're they're based on Shinto or they're based on Buddhism or they have slightly different underpinnings on that kind of thing. But um, but one common thread that I saw through all of those is that the path to knowledge is not through sitting around thinking about it, like just contemplating, right? That the path of knowledge is by doing and then finding out, you know what I mean? Like so, trying things out and then finding out again. And in Sistema, that seems to be a very common thread that it's important to, to know yourself, but that you can only know yourself by testing yourself in a sense, right? And in the, in the stoic sense of just like, you know, is this condition that I so, the condition that I so feared, right? If I, if I get somebody to stop me from breathing, if I get six guys to lie on top of me, and then see if I can feel where the beginning of emotion of panic comes from and then see if I can move that around and manifest it in a different way in my body. And then once I've cleared myself of that, can I just move these six guys off of me calmly, right? <laughs> Things like that. You know, it's very, very interesting. But but it seems like that you could study it and you could look at it and you could watch somebody practicing and read about um, Tai Chi or you could read about Sistema. But the, but the really useful knowledge, like 98% of it, is actually embodied, right? It's something that your body does. And then that's what it manifests over time. And then that's reflected in your thought patterns and not really the other way around. And it's that seems to me be a really valuable antidote at the moment to the idea that we're kind of robots, um, robot bodies with computers that take in information through the, you know, and I think this partly comes from the development of um, psychology through the information age at the same time and metaphors being used, like the same metaphors about memory and capacity and things like that, uh, as we develop computers, because we didn't have any other language for talking about the brain, right? But now we're, I think, starting to get away from that a little bit. But but the, um, you know, the it's there, right? Already the metaphors are kind of sunk and it's difficult to get away from them sometimes. But do you think um, then there's some value to not pushing, um, but to realizing the value of physical culture 
in undoing some of these problems that we have in society today, including the meaning crisis. Well, very much. And, and, and as I alluded to that, and then you picked up on it, I think, very astutely. The computer metaphor, it, it, it accelerated something that was had been going on for quite some time, which is we have tended to reduce knowing to propositional knowing. That's what computers are. You create pro syntactic right propositions, and then you manipulate them logically. If, right? if this, yeah, then this. Yeah, exactly. If not, then yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay. exactly. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and the academic... The rise of the academic world only makes that worse because all we do is, is generate theories. And what has happened is we tended to we tended to forget all the other kinds of knowing, but, right? We tended to forget knowing. So propositional knowing is knowing that, knowing that if then, right? If I right knowing that water is the that sugar is dissolvable in water. If I put sugar in water, blah 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 blah. I know all that, but that's different from knowing how to catch a ball, right? That's your procedural knowing. And and your sense of realness is different. My sense for my proposition is I believe them because I have a conviction of their truth. But I don't believe my skills, but my skills empower me within my interactions, right? And that's a different sense of realness. Power is a different sense of realness. To all our listeners and Sistema fans around the world, NC Sistema have moved all of our regular classes online live streaming group classes via Zoom most days at 6.30pm US Eastern Standard Time, plus daytime classes on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Sundays. Please consider this an open invitation for you and your students to join us for the duration of COVID, to come together online, and to keep our skills and our groups alive. Payment is on a sliding scale relative to where you're at and what you can afford. Visit ncsystema.com slash online to sign up today. Join us. That's that's, inter that's really interesting phrasing because that's something again, as you said, there are different things in different parts of your kind of career and development as an as an artist where you, different things jump out at you and emphasize themselves. And of within the last three years, power has become all encompassing in, in my head. Not the development of power like over people, but the idea of intrinsic power that doesn't require any additional effort in order to be um, to move things or create actions in the world. You know, so that's that's fascinating. That you chose that word. So let me uh, let me continue on then because it might suggest some other things. So, uh, but the procedural knowledge, the, and the, 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 what I'm doing is what's called for e-cognitive science, which challenges the computer metaphor, right? Challenges the reduction of knowing to propositional knowing. First of all, you move into procedural knowing, and procedural knowing already involves sensory motor interaction with the world. I can't know how to catch a baseball, uh, but just I, like I have to do it, I have to enact it. Right, or I can't ever get that ability. But that procedural knowledge depends on a, a deeper kind of knowing. It depends on what, what I call perspectival knowing. This, and you're doing it right now. You're salience landscaping. Probably my face is more salient than what's behind me. My words are more salient than other noises. But right, you're doing all that relevance realization, and you're creating this rich perspective. So you know what it is like to be here now as you in this state of mind. You'd be in a and you right. You're in a, you'd be in a you'd have very different perspectival knowing. If you were drunk right now, yeah. for example, right? Yeah. Now, so what does what does perspectival knowing give you? It's it's it, it's 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 the situational awareness you need to acquire and apply your skills. Now, what's the, what's the thing you get out of situational awareness? Well, we we now have a thing that helps us study this, which is virtual reality. Virtual reality. And so, what are people looking for? And what makes virtuality real for them? It's it's called a sense of presence. It's a sense of the here nowness, right? The right is somehow. So, so not just not just the appearance of being real right it's not just that how it's not the um it's not the veracity of it or something that i think they found that and that you could have a very high definition environment and people 
believe it less or embodied less than a kind of a blocky one that they're in present in. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. The verisimilitude, right, is not the thing that is most predictive of that sense of presence. It has to do more with this what's called like flow will engender it because flow has in it what's called like this optimal grip. Remember, we were talking about always trying. We're always trying that the brain is think about it as a, not just a, a two dimensional, but a multi dimensional space in which it's always trying to find the optimal point between zooming out, zooming in, stepping back, looking through, you know, focusing on what's familiar, opening up to what's unfamiliar. And it's always trying to do this so that it gets the best optimal grip on the, the situation. Because optimal gripping gives you a sense of presence so you know which skills to acquire and which skills to apply, right? And so oh, it's the discard even. Or, right? or it's the discard, yes. <laughs> yeah. and so this white sense of presence is also in in, in, in little tiny corners of right the, the popular culture, people are getting this. They're right. They they talk about whether or not somebody was present when they were talking to somebody else, right? That that sense of presence. So that's another sense of realness. But what did, but your situational awareness is grounded on your participatory knowing. Participatory knowing is the knowing, and it, even calling it knowing is is kind of shading. It's so right here. My phone. My phone is graspable by me, right? Okay. Now, being graspable is not a property of this phone. An ant can't grasp it, right? And, and it's not a property of me alone. Look, it's graspable. That makes no sense. It's that I, so evolution has enabled me, right, to shape myself and also, right, to certain shapes with the environment so we fit together. And then, what, so notice it here. And then what culture has done is it creates tools, right? What culture does is it shapes me to the environment and the environment to me. So I, I, sure. I also don't have it. it's like a so convergent evolution, like the, the the phone evolved to fit your hand and vice versa. <laughs> yeah. Yes, right. So you've got biological evolution and cultural evolution. So I know what it. I can grasp this biologically, but I also know how to use it as a phone, as a tool, right? And then on top of that is that dynamic. Remember, we talked about cognition as this dynamic moment-to-moment -moment evolution of your fittedness, your optimal gripping. So I can grasp it because of how the biological evolution shaped my, me and the environment, what's called niche construction, and then how culture shaped me and the environment, and then how my cognition is shaping me right here, right now, so that I can have a particular conversation on this phone. So that's participatory knowing. Participatory knowing are all the affordances that are generated for you by the way in which evolution, culture, and cognition co-shape you and your environment together. Okay. So so are they the two, the first two, ESA 4E cognition? Or it, what was the other? So you had perspectival. Procedural, perspectival, and participatory bring us into this understanding that cognition is inherently embodied. Okay. Because yeah. That, that, so the procedural is right? So that's what brings yeah, us back to that them. Yeah. it's inherently inactive. I, 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 I actually do my cognition by interacting with the world. I enact my mind. My mind isn't primarily in my head, where my propositions are. It's in my 
you know, it's in my, 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 my skills and my perspectives and my affordances that are between me and the world. So I'm embodied, I'm embedded, I'm enacted, my cognition is extended. So for e-cognitive science emphasizes the procedural knowing, the perspectival and the participatory and how they all interpenetrate in a dynamic fashion. So, so how do we get that across to people? Because as you said, even the cliff notes require like <laughs> a solid hour and, and, and probably like a, a degree level education in some, in some fairly serious philosophical concepts. Um, so how do we get across that across to people that movement, uh, there's something about movement culture, especially um, in recent years that has been about, okay, we need to do the minimum in the most efficient time and high intensity interval training and four minute abs. And it's almost done just like treating the body like a machine that you just need to spike it with this amount of cardio in order to get this and eat this amount of creatine and do these many reps and the muscle grows. And it, it became, those outcomes became more important than movement for its own sake. And now we know that movement for its own sake is critically important, not just for general health, but also because in a very real sense, the movements that you're making in your mind, the connections that you're making in your mind are almost depend dependent on or constrained by the scope of things that you think you can do with your body. Is it fair to say that? Because there's been some people like Barbara Tversky or even Mercia Feldenkrais going further back, you know, have talked a lot about that, that, you know, if, if you're limited in your your sense of neurological control, like if you don't, if you're not even aware of really what your body does, then you're not aware of what your mind is doing on a day-to-day -day basis. But the more aware you become of your body, the more aware you can be of the movements of your mind and then see them in contrast and then do different things with them, focus them in a different way, apply them more consistently. I, I sometimes want to add a, five, a 50, which is the idea coming from Michael Anderson's words of exaptation. So, um, hmm. okay, so it's a, bi it's a biological term, but I'm showing, I've already indicated that there's what Evan Thompson, my friend and colleague, calls a deep continuity hypothesis between your biologic, the principles that regulate your biology and the principles that regulate your cognition, and ultimately the principles that regulate culture, right? Um, so this thing, my tongue, right, it evolved originally for moving food around and for detecting poison. And it happened to be in the air passageway because the food in the food uh, source and the air source went were shared. Yeah, yeah, same same hole, hole, which is not necessarily a great design, <laughs> yeah. but we'll put that aside. But what has happened is what I'm doing now with it, which no other organism does with its tongue, I'm speaking. So the tongue has been exacted for speech. And so what we know, is, well, in fact, well, sorry. So it's like co-opted in more layman's terms, kind of co-opted or re repurposed, repurposed? Repurpose. Um, uh, Michael Anderson also calls it a circuit reuse. The way how in a computer you can you can you can have a, func a, a circuit for doing this, and then you can reuse it for for that function or that function. Oh, man, now we're back to the computer metaphors again. I thought we were trying to lose those. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but notice how it's it's a different metaphor. It's a, it's a metaphor about the sort of plasticity. Sure. Yeah. Just being facetious. Right? <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. So I would like I would argue that. There should be this 50 that your cognitive processes are exacted out of your biological processes. So the very processes, right, that uh, that sort of constitute you as a self-making thing, as a, a living thing, are exacted into your cognition. And you mentioned Tversky's idea, you know, that, uh, you know, how you navigate an environment. So you create, you create, look, 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 look notice how that you have to create the skills, but that's not enough for, for navigation. I have to have the perspectival, right? I have to have the situational awareness, right? And then also I, I need to, right? I, but I have to depend upon 
right, biology and perhaps to some degree culture and my cognition, finding the affordances. Well, there's a possible pathway. A pathway isn't an entity in physics. A pathway is describing an affordance relation. So you're doing all of that stuff we're talking about. But then what it looks like we do is we exact that into navigating within conceptual space. Okay, got you. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so that warrants a, a fifth branch there and then in order to kind of see the whole picture as that. So, so one thing that strikes me is that some people listening to this are going to be like, oh, this is fascinating and going super deep into the whole thing. And some other people are still going to be looking at it as if this is maybe a pathway towards you know, optimization. So let's say everything's going right for you and you're quite happy and you're seeking kind of self-actualization and enlightenment and higher processes of thinking and movement or something like that, right? You're trying to get into that last 1% of ability to think and perform and act and do things and understand yourself. Um, but they might kind of look at it and sort of say, hey, again, how does this relate to me in my level of life and the stresses that I experience on a daily basis and how I interact with my boss and my family and my kids and things like that? To me, some of that comes down to like a deficit in this kind of understanding or like a clinging adherence to, a, to one set of ideas as to how to cure these things, right? Be it like one dogmatic series of ideas or maybe an over-dependence on a secular ind independence of, from those ideas, right? What was one of those? Um, we'll leave you kind of set up for some of, of what we're seeing today, which is, again, people without the ability to orient themselves, it seems. And, and of course, COVID has just exaggerated that, right? COVID didn't break America. <laughs> it, just, it just basically threw into sharp relief all the problems that uh, the United States has. And, it's, and in, one, in one obvious way, it's making everybody more sessile, right? At least in the US, everybody's like sitting down, becoming Netflix con consuming zombies, and then they're going out less. Um, it's shifting everybody towards information work and working from home. So it's decreasing their kind of physical presence with each other. Um, it's constrained the aspects of physical culture they might have enjoyed, like going to the gym or the dojo or... Or in even like social fitness things like CrossFit, some of them are still going on in parks, but it's just considerably less fun if you haven't got your little base to go to and you have to do it in masks and things. It's just people are kind of dropping off with it. And, and stress generally as, as, a, as a, um, an effect makes people kind of freeze, hide, seek kind of self-soothing behaviors and all that kind of stuff as a rule. How, how can we kind of get across to people the idea that um, this is important to them to understand this might be a path out of their kind of gradual zombification and disconnection from the world yeah i think i think i think the COVID. one way is to make them understand a couple things here that the covid crisis has basically accelerated the meaning crisis people are experiencing a a, a loss of religio and you just described it very eloquently in many dimensions in many ways and they're and they're dropping into a scarcity mentality which is really limiting the cognitive flexibility that's so needed for insight and if you are limiting your cognitive flexibility if you're reducing your capacity capacity for insight and your capacity for connectedness, your your proneness to self-deception magnifies greatly. That's and you, an important and point. That's an extremely yeah. important point right there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, and if you don't care about self-deception, man, you're you're kind of doomed. Right. And then this goes to another point that you made, which is people we, we've talked about this reduction of everything, the loss of our 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 our, our knowledge and, and awareness of procedural and perspectival and participatory knowing. When you get locked into propositions, you think the only way to change people and the only way to do any of this is by beliefs ideologies and so you get locked into co ideological combat as the only strategy that seems viable for you for making a, a, a crafting a response to 
the meaning crisis. And this is precisely the wrong kind of response because it's locking you into the wrong kind of knowing. You're using the wrong kind of knowing because most of the meaning-making machinery is not at the propositional ideological level. That's absolutely critical because most, most people decry the fact that there are algorithms and you know places where we gather that force us towards these kind of you know taking positions and combating each other but exactly. it seems from what you've said it seems like they're ignoring ignoring the underlying fundamental problem it's not that facebook exists or twitter exists or that we're being manipulated sometimes politically or things like that it's actually that we're not using the machinery we need to or we're not invoking it and exercising it in order to tell the difference. Exactly, exactly. So you've lost the discernment. So you, you get you get wrapped into a self-deception that is stuck within a form of processing that truncates your ability to become aware of the self-deception and truncates your ability to access the machinery that actually affords the meaning and the transformation that you're hungering right. for. So. So what's the way out? I mean, obviously, that's a loaded question and probably would take another series of 10 lectures. There's one for you there. What's the way out? And that's your next lecture series. Isn't it? So, but I mean, is short of the obvious things like just try and reduce your capacity for being buffered into these situations where that kind of scarcity thinking comes forth, right? Um, where you feel threatened and you feel like that's the only way that you can respond and, and that you can work. How can we jog ourselves out of this mode? and into something more useful in the current situation. Well, that, that's why my series is actually called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, because it's, it's about trying to answer that question. Um, and what I think we need, well, what I think we need is, and I want to say this is what I already see emerging. Um, I sometimes use the slogan of a religion that's not a religion uh, to talk about this, because what we were talking about, what we need are nested ecologies of practices that align and integrate all these kinds of knowings together and uh, and create connections not only this way, but also between us and also not just between us, but also between us and the world. Parallel. Yes, mm -hmm. right. And and, 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 the, and and that bring us into the cultivation of wisdom and the comprehensive transformation of our cognition and our, our communi communing with us. The, th the, the one kind of thing that we've done culturally in the past that's done that and right housed these nested ecologies of practices as have been religion. Now, the problem I would argue, and I, I'm very respectful for religion because they generate and continue to home all of these wisdom practices and they matter to people. And I'm so very respectful for that. But I think that many of the existing religions do not have like, let's let's take a religion that I, you know, think about how a lot of Buddhism is coming into the West. And it's largely about sitting, just sitting and meditating. And the whole, the movement aspects of the wisdom tradition are, are not present, for, right, right? You see what I mean, right? And so what you need is we need something that says, no, no, what we need a framework that does a bunch of things for us. It creates a nested ecology of practices for transformation in wisdom, but it's how it can be properly housed within the dominant scientific worldview. Because if we're going to, if we're waiting for science to disappear or we're going to deny science, look what the hell has happened to us in, by, because we tried to deny science right now. That's not 
an option for us. <laughs> Let's just reinforce that right now. But in case there's any like uh, yeah, people taking the wrong meaning from what we've said, we're not uh, we're not implying that we should deny science or let go of it. Right? It's definitely very very handy. Right. So that's kind of what I mean by saying it's religion that's not a religion. What it has, but it also has to do something else. It has to help facilitate what happened at the movement center. There are all these emerging ecologies of practice in which procedural, perspectival, and participatory knowing are being cultivated, and they're being cultivated for wisdom and meaning. And we need to help afford those communities growing and growing together and growing in a co-op, you know, dynamical system together so that they, we, we create an alternative culture, what Stephen Baxter calls a culture of awakening. And, and that's also what a religion that's not a religion should help to do. And I think that, and I'm not trying to found a religion, that's ridiculous and preposterous. I'm talking about something that's already happening and trying to use the best tools of cognitive science to try and facilitate it and enhance its emergence. That's what I- Come more, more, yeah. more like a well, movement. A, 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 a cultural movement though, yeah. right? Absolutely, yeah. Do, do you feel like there are, there are some places that are already doing that better than others or that where that idea is kind of, I don't, where it's kind of germinating more strongly? You know, it seems like some of the anti-science kind of aspects in the, some aspect places in the United States would hold that down to begin with. And it seems like there's a, there's a stark difference between, you know, the hippies on the coasts who like to practice movement and embody things <laughs> and the, the, the down-home folks who just like to get on with life and practice and and they might have their religion or they might not, but they're just they're not interested in these kind of lofty ideas about how we might develop or something like that. And so there's there's kind of a split that way, it seems, um, within American culture. Right. And so um, what could unite them? And is, is, have we got any models for it in other countries or other cultures um, where it seems to be working well? Because it seems like I've just started reading a book by um, Tyson Junkerparta called um, Sand Talk about like, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this guy. I only got made aware of him through a friend recently. And he's basically speaks on Aboriginal indigenous culture in Australia and how they have like circular concepts of time. They have completely different ideas about sustainability. And, and the whole book is kind of a flip of anthropology in, in which he uses indigenous ideas to look at all of science and all of kind of progress in the Socratic method and sort of saying that's just one way it could have gone and it could have spread a whole bunch of different ways. Um, and in that, he talks about how um, in Australia, at least, it's, it seems like there's two ways. It's like you call in other ways of knowing as a kind of, uh, I don't know, as a token gesture, like, oh, let's see what the nice little indigenous people with their wisdom have to say. And then once they've had their say, we can take what we like and take a couple of things and apply them. But basically our our operating system here is hard science on what we're working with, but we're not really working with them. Are there places or cultures that integrate those kind of different ways of generating wisdom well? Um, we have in the past. I mean, so in the past, this is why I'm so interested in Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism was simultaneously sort of the best rational, intellectual, scientific take on the world, combined and integrated seamlessly with a set of spiritual practices uh, for transformation of the cultivation of wisdom. Now, I'm not advocating that we return to Neoplatonism any more than I think we should advocate returning to the Aboriginal worldview. We can't learn. We can't unlearn the axial revolution. That that that's not an option for us. Uh, but. Uh, taking a, 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 a respectful look at this. Uh, and by the way, that's why Neoplatonism was absorbed into Christianity and formed such a big basis of Eastern Orthodox Christianity because it, it, it did that. It actually integrated the science and the spirituality together. So we have done it. 
before in the past, and I think it, it is emerging. I don't know if I could put a location on it. There have been cultural movements, though, that are also good um, analogs for what I'm talking about. Uh, Thomas Bjorkman in, in, in The Nordic Secret talks about the fact that, you know, I, I can't, my history on this is, is not as good as his. Um, and he's definitely aware of what he calls the meta crisis and how the meat crisis is part of the meta crisis. Uh, Thomas and I talk. Um, but what uh, the Scandinavian countries did at one time, not that long ago, I think it was like about a century or a century and a half ago, they were authoritarian, agrarian, you know, impoverished countries. And then they started this movement called the building movement, where they basically created sort of something like secular monasteries, where people went for a while, funded by the state. It sounds like lot socialism. No, it wasn't. You went there, right? And what you did is you basically, it, they were secular, but philosophically deep wisdom training centers. And, and what they what they what they realized was if they were going to change the culture at a socio-political level, they had to change it at a cultural, cognitive community level. And so they created the, the, this whole network, it's called the Nordic Secret, of these secular retreats and monasteries, the building movement, and they transformed the culture bottom up. And then they were able to graft democracy and a powerful social network on that. So, so is that what makes the, the difference between the way that um, the Nordic countries look at socialism and the way that it's kind of viewed here as like a, a slippery slope towards fascism or something exactly. like that. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, and this is part of the problem, and it goes to what we said earlier, your ideologies are ultimately regulated by, dependent on, and, and generated by underlying deeper cultural patterns, just like the propositional stuff is dependent on the procedural, perspectival, and participatory. That's why, you know, you can you can have, you know, the best constitution in the world, best set of propositions, but if you lose the cultural commitment, your, your, your democracy is doomed. And, and, I, and, I, and I mean this, you know, I'm a Canadian, I mean this, you know, from a stance of friendship. I'm, I'm worried that the cultural normativity that grounds democracy in the United States is being undermined so dramatically that no merely political or even constitutional uh, reform is going to be sufficient for addressing that. Let me give you one example of what I'm I share mean. that worry. <laughs> Let me give you one example of what I mean. Remember we talked earlier about how cognition and biology work in terms of what's called opponent processing? Think of, you know about arousal. You, you study this, right? The, the, the autonomic nervous system and how the sympathetic how the sympathetic and parasympathetic system work in opposition, but they're locked together because that is that's the optimal way of creating a self-correcting system that can continually on the fly re, like recalibrate itself. But what what you have is although they are they have opposing biases, they are integrated together and they are in the service of the process of self-correction. Democracy is supposed to be opponent processing in the service of self-correction. People are supposed to have their primary allegiance to the process of self-correction and, and understanding that you, my opponent, are the best way in which I can correct myself. That has been lost and it has been replaced, and this is something Leo Ferrara and I talk about, that has been replaced by an adversarial, destroy the opponent, winner take all, cultural mindset that I think is absolutely destructive to democracy. Democracy cannot survive in that cultural mindset. That's what I'm talking and ironically, about. Ironically, the people probably most adherent to those extreme fanatical political viewpoints are probably also locked in the sympathetic nervous state and on a slow path to decline themselves as well, you know? It's, yeah, can't allow one of those things to take over. Absolutely. Wow. So um, so just to sum up, um, to, to round off, uh, if you had a piece of advice 
for somebody who wanted to get into these modes of thinking to find out more about where to start? You mentioned earlier on your um, lecture series, the the fifty uh, awakening from the uh, from from the meaning crisis lectures. Are they freely available on YouTube? Do you have to subscribe yep, to they're them? They're freely available. They're freely available. Um, I also so that's a lecture series. I also have a corresponding uh, dialogo series, um, and I would actually hopefully I can get the files from you uh, for today to upload to. My, so what I do there. Uh, is I, I, I have these kinds of discussions, these kinds of dialogues, uh, where the, the goal is is not debate, although we challenge each other. The goal is can we can we together get to a place that we couldn't get to on our own individually? That's the that's the key feature. And so there's lots in there about dialogue, dialogos, dialectic, bridging between science and spirituality. So I have the voices with Raveki. I also do, as I've mentioned, all of these are free. I do every morning. Uh, the, for free, uh, you know, the, the meditating with John Verveke, where and, and the, they're all they have all been saved uh, on uh, YouTube. I teach you uh, Vipassana, Metta, Prajna, the movement practices that we've talked about, do the whole Eastern tradition, and now we're starting the Western tradition. So that's all freely available for people as well. Phenomenal. Great. And that's okay. I'll post those links along with the show notes here so people can uh, click through and check those out. That's that's an amazing resource. That's great. I love it. I think I've got about 500 hours of lectures and a lot of uh, practice to <laughs> get into from uh, coming away from this. Brilliant. And then one final question that was a friend, from a friend of mine. Um, how can we kind of pass this on to our kids? How can we not let them kind of run into the same kinds of mistakes that we're having? This might not be a simple answer, but his his way of putting it down is like, I've, I'm stuck indoors with a 10-year-old during COVID. What's the best thing that I can do? Is it get her moving, get her meditating? What, what's, what's the best use of time if we're trying to help another generation avoid the kind of cognitive lock that some of us have put ourselves into already? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't mean to sound defeated. There's not a lot you can do with a 10-year-old because they're still in sort of formal operations, sure. right? They're, 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 right? Uh, embodiment, and, maybe. And, I can just yeah, start with embodiment. Some embodiment practices. Uh, you might be able to teach them some very basic mindfulness practices. Um, eat, and then adolescence, at least the first half of adolescence, is really that, that's um, that you, being present and connected is important. Now my older son is living with me, right? And now um, he's doing all of this. He's doing all of these practices. Uh, he's engaging in them all deeply and profoundly. Um, and so, I, sorry, I, I would recommend reading Zach Stein's book on what educating between two worlds, because he, he says we have to change our model of education and bring back the idea of it being more culturally centered and more, more a way of bridging between generations, rather than just simply preparing people for the market. That has been a disastrous way of understanding education. Um, so I, I guess now we've got the opportunity, right? We, we get the chance to push the reset button on education right now because <laughs> a lot of the kids can't go to school. They're doing online learning. It's like, okay, what do we send home? Send home what's really important, you know? So, so get get a hold of Zach Stein's book. Watch some of the videos that some of the ones I've done uh, with Zach Stein and Andrew Sweeney. I, I think that would be recommendation. And what you want to think about is, you know, until sort of early adulthood, you want to think more about preparing them, just sowing the seeds, right? So that when they turn to this, um, there, you know, you've got something to work with, and uh, uh, you know, so like like what's happening with my my son now as a young adult. He, he has the pr propensity for it by the time he arrives at adulthood. <laughs> so maybe not the motivation earlier on, but maybe he'll find that later. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to be very judicious and, and um, uh, 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 with, with that sowing of the seeds, and and, 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 and you know and. 
there's a lot of contingencies. Parenting is really hard. It's one of the most challenging things people could do. And I don't consider myself an expert at it. Um, so, but I do recommend the work of Zach Stein uh, for trying to get us to rethink education in a way that is deeply responsive to the meeting crisis. Excellent. Well, John, I want to be mindful of your time and uh, the meaning you've created here as well. So thank you so much for allowing us to run over a little bit. This has been a fascinating conversation for me and uh, hopefully we can uh, maybe reconnect at some point further down the line and um, explore some more ideas. I wanted to get into your book, The Zombies in Western Culture and a bunch of other things we didn't have time for, but uh, I'd love to revisit this and, and talk some more at some point. And in the meantime, I'll post all the stuff on the show notes. And if people want to find you on the web, what's what's the best uh, URL? Have you got one spot to get to? I have a web, I have sort of a, a website, but it's not not useful. The, the, the best place is, is to connect to me uh, through the, the video channel, the YouTube channel. That's the best. That's, that's I also have a Discord server called, right? It's called Awakening from the Meeting Crisis. And there's a vibrant community there discussing my work, doing these practices, creating an ecology of practice. That's a great, and I, and I go on there regularly and do a live Q&A. Uh, and so that's also, that's a powerful resource for plugging into this, all of this, uh, like, like a vibrant community right now that's doing all this work. And it's right there, it's available, it's ready to go. It's, it's, so get on the Discord server, yeah. Well, I'll be doing that right after this. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much once again, and I uh, hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Sistema, please visit us online at www.ncsistema.com. <laughs>